0: Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical.
1: So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike.
0: History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Today on History Six Hundred Five show, we interview Istvan Gambos. Istvan is a, a retired German professor from the University of South Dakota, who originally hailed from Hungary. Istvan spent a career teaching German to USD students and possesses a unique skill uh, because of his sophisticated and fluent language skills with German, he's in a rare position to be able to research German newspapers in South Dakota. Uh, And in the fall 2021 issue of South Dakota History, he published uh, one of the products of that research on the Eureka Rundschau, which was a German newspaper in Eureka. Incredibly, Eureka, a town of nearly 6,800 inhabitants in 1910, had thousands of subscribers to this German language newspapers. The reasons it did so has to do with German history, Ukrainian history, Russian history that uh, predates uh, the conversation that we talk about in, in the early 20th century. But it has to do a lot with how South Dakota was settled. Ironically, we recorded this episode just a few days after Russia invaded Ukraine. And so the situation in Europe was heavily on our minds as we started this uh, conversation, you can get a sense of that discussion as we go through the conversation about the meaning of a war in Ukraine uh, and what it meant to early 20th century South Dakotans, particularly those of German origins, who are now trying to make their way in life in Dakota Territory or in South Dakota. Another thing I'd like to point out about Istvan's article is that it won the Shell Prize uh, this year at... uh, the History Conference that we have, and uh, that means that it was the best researched and best written article of the year for the South Dakota History Journal. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Istvan Gambos and uh, his insight and his opening up of this part of South Dakota's unique history. Istvan, welcome
1: to History 605. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, thank you. Istvan wrote a great article for the fall edition of South Dakota History, and it's about a newspaper in Eureka. Uh, but it wasn't just any newspaper. It had quite a readership, and it was a German-language newspaper. It was run and owned by some very savvy people in a very unique time. And I'm I'm wondering, uh, Istvan, we don't think—certainly South Dakotans would know that there's a lot of German names who are second, third, fourth, fifth generation South Dakotans, but uh, why a lot of Germans came to Dakota Territory or South Dakota uh, may be uh, unfamiliar to a lot of people, so I'm wondering if you can just talk about—before we get into the the German Rundschau, the or the Eureka Rundschau, which was the name of the paper— um, A little bit about the German immigration, uh, where they were coming from, and uh, why they came to Dakota Territory or South Dakota, if you can give us some background on that.
1: There are several reasons. Germany, until the early 20th century, was a country not of immigration, but emigration. Many Germans left as a result of overpopulation and lacking availability of land. So they came here in the 19th century also for political reasons and starting in the mid to late 19th century, around 1860, many of these immigrants ended up in the upper Midwest simply because the land was available at a very low price or for free. The same is true of Germans not living in imperial Germany but in other locations of Europe, primarily in Russia and, interestingly enough for today, Mm -hmm. in what's today the Ukraine. These settlers were invited to Russia in the late 18th century by Catherine the Great. They were promised free land and several privileges, including uh, a tax-exempt status for a while and, most importantly, released from military service. Okay. Some of these Germans were Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Calvinists, and others represented the Hutterite and Mennonite Mm -hmm. confessions, known for their pacifistic stance. Right. The promise was upheld for a while, but then eventually broken around 1870 when the Tsar, Nicholas, I believe, decided to include the Germans in Russia to the military conscription and eventual draft. Okay. And that's what compelled about half of these, what we call today simply, Russian-Germans mm-hmm. to seek opportunity elsewhere in South and North America in Kansas, in Oklahoma, in Nebraska pretty much, mm-hmm. in Iowa, even in the state of Washington, but first and foremost in the Dakotas. Yeah. Particularly in southern North Dakota and northern South Dakota, Here in Mac- including
0: McPherson County. McPherson County, right, uh, where the town of Eureka is. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a little backtrack then. The European politics uh, and wars from the 1840s, 50s, 60s are driving this. Uh, Catherine the Great is seeking to modernize Russia and so forth, wants skilled laborers like these Germans to come to Russia, invites them. And then, I guess it would be her grandson or so, uh, changes the deal on them. And uh, they... they. Uh, begin to think maybe there's better, greener grasses or elsewhere, right? Didn't later Vladimir Ilyich famously
1: say that promises are like eggs.
0: <laughs> if you need an omelet. You got to break some eggs. Yep. Yes. Um, so that becomes, uh, that's the push, I guess, out of places like Odessa, Ukraine and and what is
1: the cream region?
0: yeah the Crimea Uh, that's the push out but what's the draw to the upper Dakotas then um, for them the high quality of the
1: soil that lends itself to agricultural production the excellent soil comparable to the quality Mm -hmm. of the soil available in the ukraine called yeah. Chernozem, okay black rich yeah. fertile right soil that lends itself to the production of wheat and also of course corn
0: yeah um and what was the number of i i looked at in the article uh you talk about the population and so forth and i think just uh Checking the article here, 6,800 people in McPherson County in the census of 1910, and nearly 5,000 of them were these Germans uh, coming from Germany or Russia.
1: A typical German pocket. Yes. A pocket.
0: The the attraction like a magnet uh, around uh, in McPherson County in this, this area of northern and central South Dakota.
1: Pretty much so because... According to the census of a bit later,
0: 1910,
1: Mm -hmm. 40% of South Dakota's uh, population was of German origin or directly German. Yeah. 40% Wow,
0: That's a lot of Germans. Well, and a lot of Germans, uh, this community then wants to know what's going on. And so uh, the way to do that um, at that time and today is newspapers. And your article then focuses on... Uh, the the foundation of this German newspaper. Ab- absolutely, because yeah.
1: didn't don't they say that the U.S. was or is still, I hope, uh, a country of newspapers? Yeah, and that includes uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of German newspapers all over the nation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oddly, interestingly enough, the first. German newspaper was founded in the Gettysburg area in Pennsylvania by Benjamin Franklin. Kind of? Yep. Yeah. And so it's not a surprise that our state also yielded a number of German newspapers, around 15 total, But most of these papers didn't uh, live for a very long time. Right. But some of them survived for decades. Of course, this is, this number is a lot smaller for demographic reasons than the one we see in Minnesota or even North Mm -hmm. Dakota. Okay. Nebraska, Iowa. But still, we fare pretty well.
0: Right, right. Um, What are the kind of the things that, so these would be weeklies? Or dailies or a mix?
1: In our state we are talking about weekly papers.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah, And when you're reading them, um, uh what are the kind of things that are in them that might be different than say the Argus Leader of nineteen ten? What would they be talking about? Uh or the Yankton Press and Dakota and other newspapers that are kind of the venerable papers of South Dakota? What would what would the Runshaw, the name of this the paper Rundschau. would be uh in its content in a weekly?
1: Just like every newspaper, it offered a mixture of uh, international news, national news and local news. Okay. Of course, with a German focus right. in all the areas just mentioned above. Right. So, quite frankly, I'm not a newspaper expert, but I don't see any major differences regarding okay. the choice of topics made by the editors of the English newspapers on the one hand and the editors of the okay. ethnic, including German newspapers okay. on the other hand.
0: Now, it, you, the article talks about their readership was, was more widespread than Eureka, though, right? I mean, they had readers in South America and, and probably back in Germany. That means about five
1: thousand subscribers. Wow! So, unless everyone in Eureka subscribed to the paper, <laughs> I would say they had. And they, I do yeah. know that they did have subscribers uh, all over all over the nation, yeah. all over the world, including Argentina and mm-hmm. Germany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Quite an accomplishment, and they managed to uphold that number for quite a few mm-hmm. years. Speaking of the profile or mission of these papers, they faced a dilemma because they, on the one hand, they assisted, they, they encouraged the readers to keep their German heritage. Otherwise, they would not have been able to survive. Right. On the other hand, they assisted the immigrants in their efforts of integration to U.S. society. Mm-hmm. So in a, And that also meant uh, learning English. Right. So these papers, like it or not, gradually advanced their own demise by encouraging, supporting the readers to become Americans.
0: Right, right. Uh, it strikes me that, uh, for instance, the Germans in Russia, um, they held on to their, you know, f- for 150 years or so—the the duration from Catherine the Great and their invitation to, and then their departure uh, in the 1870s and 80s—they held on to their German culture, their That's language, true. their religion, and so forth, and then when they come to the united states it it disappears yeah over time yeah, yeah. a lot of it
1: uh, they were not the not the only ones not the only german settlers mm-hmm. in east central europe remarkably remarkably enough many of these germans managed to keep their heritage including their language for several centuries Mm -hmm. that was or is still true of the ethnic germans in my native hungary most of which came to hungary in the late 18th century and some of them still speak their ancient archaic dialect Mm -hmm. 200 years after over 200 years after as i was able to experience at my last visit in my home country in Hungary. Mm. I met Germans, ethnic Germans, older people who still speak German. not only that, but an archaic dialect or a mixture of dialects that's no longer spoken in Germany itself. The same can or must be said about uh, Germans in Transylvania which Uh is Western Romania. They arrived there in the mid to late 12th century Mm -hmm. and managed to keep their heritage until the late 20th century, when most of them left for for West Germany or Germany. So we are looking at centuries of uh, ethnic preservation and tradition and... And pride. So, yeah, the same is true as you just said of the Germans in the Volga area, mm-hmm. and then also the Germans in the what's today the Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, something creates the for the Germans in Eureka and in McPherson County, though. Uh, starting in nineteen fourteen and fifteen and nineteen sixteen, uh, there's a tension there, and I'm wondering if how does World War I and then America's ultimate entry into the war uh, change the audience or the concerns of the people who are running the, the Eureka Rundschau and these other German language newspapers? And maybe to set some context, um, I've been through the notes of the superintendent of public instruction in 1920 and, uh, and just after the First World War. And he talks about, so this is the, the gentleman who was in charge, and was an elected official for the state of South Dakota, who was in charge of K-12 education. And he's talking about uh, the deletion of German language requirements, or even the teaching of it, in South Dakota's public schools. Uh, and when you strike that type of uh, headwind against these German language newspapers and re- and the retention of their culture, when because of the war... The international situation um, and Germany's actions while the United States tried to stay neutral, according to the Wilson administration's first efforts, and then the sinking of American shipping, the Zimmerman telegram, this insulting thing to the, about the United States, just infuriated Americans all over the country. Um, and so now there's a, a, a quick and immediate suspicion of these newspapers and the people who run them. And German immigrants in general. Um, how does that change what the newspaper, uh, what the newspaper is doing in in Eureka, and around the uh, northern plains?
1: Well, it's as they say, it always takes two to quarrel. So, mm-hmm. the German newspapers all over the nation made no secret of their sympathies of the. Central powers, Mm -hmm. that is through Hungary, Germany, and Turkey, Bulgaria for the most part. So they enthusiastically supported Germany and its allies in its war against the Entente, Mm -hmm. Great Britain, and France. And that changed, of course, almost overnight after April 17th. But the change of heart didn't seem look very credible in the eyes of the American general public. Mm -hmm. They had a hard time believing that the change the sudden support for the US forces of course Mm -hmm. in World War is an honest one. Mm -hmm. No matter how the german newspapers tried to express their sympathy this time for the wilson wilson administration mm-hmm. the harder they tried the more suspicious they looked okay so no wonder no wonder that uh, the german culture was under pressure in those days but interestingly enough uh, The newspapers themselves faced uh, few restrictions. Mm-hmm. They were able, permitted to keep publishing mm-hmm. in German. Mm-hmm. All they had to do was uh, submitting certified translations in English Uh-oh. at the local postmaster of course didn't know any more in the most cases didn't know any German, so how could he tell that <laughs> the translation is fine? But right. bureaucracy is bureaucracy. Yes. So the German the papers, of course, they lost much of their audience, but not uh-huh. because of any or the xenophobia wasn't the primary reason. Uh-huh. It's the language itself. Okay. The public use of it's language itself, not in printed, but in spoken form. Uh-huh. That's what
0: it was, suffered. It was suffering due to uh, a larger desire to integrate into American culture with the English language or other reasons?
1: Because of restrictions imposed all over, over the United States, Not so much by the federal government, but the local Mm -hmm. state governments. Mm. President Wilson recommended that every state and even every county in the respective state start, found, establish uh, what was called a defense council. Okay. And that included South Dakota Mm -hmm. as well, of course. It was the defense council On questionable constitutional grounds, Mm -hmm. because they had no right to legislate.
0: Yeah.
1: It was the that regulated speech. Yeah. And in a number of orders issued by them, restricted the public use of spoken German. Mm.
0: So you couldn't even... All all over the state. Yeah. Yeah. And were they... Uh, involved in lawsuits then, these uh, citizens, or these newspapers Bank uh, lawsuits, or are they just...
1: But the papers kept publishing, that wasn't uh-huh. the problem, but okay. the spoken German, yeah, even on the phone, was punishable.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: By uh, fines, and here and there, by short detentions. Right. And that started... As early as late 17 and reached its uh, peak in the spring and the summer of 1918.
0: 1918 yeah.
1: That's where the public
0: mm-hmm.
1: use of spoken German was prohibited. The teaching of German was banned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Use of German in general was banned in the public, including church services, mm. which is very was very hard to swallow for the members of the congregations, because they, they right. simply didn't know any English. Right. And that included, in many cases, the the priests or pastors.
0: Yes. And you mentioned the Hutterites and their pacifism, that, that uh, I was visiting a Hutterite colony a couple of years ago, and one of the education leaders said, we nearly left in 1918. We were, you know, hours, days away from nearly everyone going to Canada because of these... Uh, laws that were forcing our young men into the army.
1: Many of them did leave yeah. for Canada yeah. and then returned.
0: Oh yes, yep, like, yep. But uh, had the war say gone on for another six months, there would probably be no Hutterites in yep. South Dakota. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: In fact, some of the Hutterites, the Hofer brothers, Hofer is a very common Hutterite name, yeah, were imprisoned. Mm deported to a prison island in California. Alcatraz? Alcatraz. Really? Yeah. yeah. But because they refused not only to serve in the U.S. Army Mm -hmm. but even to wear uniforms. Oh yeah. But that was an action taken not by the local but by the federal government. Okay sure. As we can Read about in an excellent book written by a historian called Stolzfuss. Okay. I forgot his first name, Stolzfuss. Okay. So he, in detail, describes what happened to these, to the Hofer brothers and their father. Okay. Okay.
0: But this, this particular newspaper, The Run Show, it kind of inspires the title of your article, which is, whatever our language, we have the same flag. So you talked about how they try to be more and more patriotic, and that may arouse even more suspicion. Um, and yet they their newspaper survives until 1927, so it's not necessarily the war in the xenophobia regarding Germans in in the First World War that ends the paper, but how do they successfully navigate through this period of 1918-1919 with the war going on and all the anti-German sentiment? What's their argument that they're making?
1: You just provided the answer. (laughs) One way or the other, they convinced the general public that they would be able to preserve their German heritage as long as possible Mm -hmm. and still become or be loyal American patriots. Mm -hmm. Also, contrary to other counties, Macpherson country, its residents I mean, never really expressed any objection to the war to the war. There were no Hutterite or other okay. Anabaptist pacifists in their ranks. They mm-hmm. were Roman Catholics, Calvinists or Lutherans. Okay. They participated in marches in favour of the war effort, mm-hmm. they dutifully if not enthusiastically participated in fundraising, in the purchase of war bonds, yeah. bonds, mm-hmm. they kept a low profile as hardworking farmers, principally not involved in politics. Yeah. So they avoided any unwelcome attention. They also learned, I suppose, from the sad example of again Hutterites mm-hmm. and Mennonites in Hutchinson County yes. in the Freeman Mennon mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. who really suffered and were subjects to persecution and arrest. That's how they Avoided. Okay. Avoided the unwelcome attention. And once they enjoyed that protected status, I would say, they carefully voiced their concern about the aforementioned prohibition of German in the schools Mm -hmm. and also in the public. So, Mm -hmm. bravely enough, you can find quite a lot of editorials, letters with concern about the suppression of foreign languages in general and German in particular. They make the case that multilingualism is in the interest, the economic and political interest of the United States.
0: Right. So that um, well let's talk a little bit about German instruction. you know something about German instruction, <laughs> and uh, how have how have you know i uh, I grew up in South Dakota we went to a, a de Smid High School and we had a German instruction there. I think I must have taken three years maybe even four years of German so why are we school. not using German now? Well, because my German's pretty rusty. rusty. of, of I Deutsch. Can, uh, der Himmel ist blau. That's that's about all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and I I even lived in Germany and I could navigate my way around and you know find uh, the read the menu perhaps and so forth. But if you don't lose it, you know you use it, uh, or if you don't yeah. use it, you lose yeah, it. You lose it. Yeah. Um, Himmel ist blau because we live in the sunshine state. Right. Now. Right. It became a handy phrase to say to to confound our uh, German teacher when we didn't know what, uh, <laughs> what what the real answer was. We would say that. Um, because uh, we were cantankerous high school boys. But, um, ha- the the slide or the trend is definitely away from foreign languages in K-12, largely because, well, for two reasons, and they kind of reinforce themselves in a negative way, the, the lack of people who know how to teach the f- languages and the lack of the desire to take the language, I think. Spanish is often taught uh, in... K-12 today, but other languages are pretty rare. You don't see French and German like you used to uh, in K-12. Um.
1: Except the major school districts, bigger school yeah. districts and yeah. high schools. So yeah. there's still a lot going on. We have mm-hmm. over 30 colleagues teaching at the K-12 through level mm-hmm. in the state. Uh, mm-hmm. So Alive, I would say even well. Okay. Of course, it cannot and doesn't have the ambition of mm-hmm. competing with enrollment numbers in Spanish, but we are still mm-hmm. solid second for cultural
0: history. Yeah. Cres- but if you... Historical it, reasons. Yes.
1: Demographic
0: reasons. But let's say if you take uh, a high school graduate who took as much... German as they possibly could, could they go and read the German newspaper, could they read the Rundschau and get get uh, sufficient understanding out of what's going on uh, from these 1915 newspapers?
1: Depending on how much they want it, how much they are okay. interested in yeah. So reading knowledge is the skill the easiest to. Yep attain, acquire, mm-hmm. if I kept telling to my students, you probably are not going to Germany for the next 10 years, but you still can ac- acquire a reading knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that should be possible. The only, the hindrance would be the script, the Gothic script, yes, which is, it is not as tough as it looks, but those with a reading knowledge of German mm-hmm. need only a few days to mm-hmm. learn how to read it. It's not such a big deal. Here is the big deal is of technical nature. Most of these papers are available on microfilm, and that's terrible for your eyes. Oh yeah, but. With the technology changing, now we have databases Mm -hmm. and we also have the Library of Congress that has made generously available a number of
0: newspapers, including
1: German newspapers online. That's a bit easier to read, a bit easier on Mm -hmm. the eyes, but you still need to be careful, at least at my age or at every age.
0: Yeah. You're talking about the Chronicling America? Uh, yep. Project that yep. the Library of Congress yep. runs, yep. right? We uh, cannot be
1: appreciated enough.
0: No, I, it's it's uh, there are treasures in that uh, to a great deal. I use it quite a bit, and I think um, the general public, you know, you don't need a library card or any special password. It's just out there on the internet. You Google Chronicling America, and a lot of your local newspapers will have uh, copies generally before 1930. Um, that are available to that. uh. But
1: if you really insist on reading the original copies, Uh no problem.
0: Uh
1: All you need to do, making an appointment with the South Dakota Historical Society, Uh including the archives, because many of these wonderful papers are kept there in the original. So, just go to yes. Ben Jones and one of yeah. his colleagues, and uh, they will give you permission and then an yes. appointment, but you have to
0: stay there. Right. Uh, the, Unless, the yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or the way I did my research, I just ordered uh, microfilms through interlibrary loans from the South Dakota Historical Society. Right.
0: There's ways so, to. Yeah, yeah. There's ways that uh, yeah. the, the information but in the papers can If you can live be found. in Pierre, yeah,
1: you just go there.
0: Right uh we uh, the amount of stuff to digitize is overwhelming so we work we work as we can to put as much online as we can through chronicling America and other programs
1: I saw that when I was for a day in peer and Indy
0: mm-hmm.
1: state archives yeah it's a wonderful experience
0: um, I, I it strikes me though that uh too with with south Dakota is remarkably we You wouldn't necessarily, uh, well, I think in a very superficial way, South Dakota is is not appreciated for its complexity, its cultural complexities, Uh, and in fact, so many of our, we talk about the the demise of Lakota, Um, now we hear we talk about the demise of German uh, and the immigrants who were pressured into not using their language and and, uh, uh, both uh, in a political way, in a legal way and in a kind of a broader certainly softer cultural way uh, through the desire to use English and not to yeah. not to carry on Grandma's German and so forth. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, that's...
0: Uh, it, it just I strikes me the, that you, yeah, you, yeah. to really understand South Dakota you have to speak all these languages. Not only English but German and Lakota. German Dakota. and
1: Lakota are the
0: heritage languages of of the state. Yeah, the heritage languages, that's an interesting way to put it.
1: So it's interesting indeed. You see so many German names uh, Mm -hmm. on class lists. uh,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Few of these students of German origin know or are willing to mention that their ancestors are actually not from Germany mm-hmm. but from Russia. For whatever mm-hmm. reason, they many of them even avoid the topic. Right. So that I found a bit strange. Somewhere from my folks are from somewhere in Germany. That's all they will. Say. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Not interested or in the topic or not interested right. in addressing the topic.
0: Right. Well it's such a such an often compelling story about being uh, the the being invited to russia under the conditions at the time then wishing to leave due to how the conditions yeah. have changed where they chose to go in the united states or canada and, canada and or then canada or both back. and yeah. then back yeah. Yeah. um the hutterite story is particularly compelling i find it uh, to be one of not only first amendments but also well all of the first amendment the speech and religion in its entirety, um, the right to assemble and petition your government and so forth, which in the end kind of wins out in a legal sense. But over the long haul, the difficulty, and I mean, uh, I don't know how many people in Eureka today could read a German newspaper. Um, Minimum, Yeah. yeah. And a hundred years ago, it was everybody, nearly everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how things change, right?
1: I understand... The Hatterites make an interesting exception. Yes. I don't know how much German they still speak. I understand they do speak Mm -hmm. an archaic Mm -hmm. Tyrolean, Austrian dialect or German. But whenever you go there, and I was fortunate to go there and visit them with my students, they won't talk to you in German, probably because they they know or they anticipate that they will not understand Mm -hmm. their German.
0: Their dialect is different dialect. what you're teaching in the classroom.
1: So when I was there, here and there I used a few common phrases, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: speaking them to them in English, but here and there I used a few phrases and they understood and they gave me an approving smile. Uh So that was... Yeah, interesting. You have to live there, I guess, for a longer period of time, right? And learn the dialect, which right. is, which cannot be easy.
0: No. No, I'm, uh, my own experience in Germany. Ri- well, riding on a German train into Switzerland, uh, at the Swiss border, they changed the conductor, and the accent, of course, was radically different. And all the Germans on the train that had come from Frankfurt. Just threw their hands up in the air and just thought that they had just gone into another dimension because of this crazy dialect that the Swiss German speaker was using, um, and the the laughter uh, to an American uh, it was it was I could notice the difference in the dialects, but they were um, bemused by this <laughs> this radically different type of German Swiss German, Swiss indeed, German. indeed. That's yeah. a special. Case
1: as I understand, we do have some minor groups of Swiss origin, yes, in the a, farmer area, mm-hmm. in the area around a, the city called Farmer,
0: uh, right. Uh, northwest, yes, in Lake County, there were Lake some Swiss County. colonies, yeah, yeah. um, that established there. And there's uh, every once in a while you, you run into a Swiss name here in South Dakota. I ran into one the other day. Uh, that was clearly Swiss, uh, uh, named Roti, I think, R-O-T-I, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, well, Istvan, it's been a great conversation, uh, and I'd like to—thanks thanks for coming in, and we've been discussing the Eureka Runschau newspaper that ran from 1915 to 1927 and connected Germans from Russia living in the Northern Plains to their communities here and uh, and to those communities in Eastern Europe. So uh, the article appears in the fall 2021 issue, and uh, Istvan, it's been great to meet with you and talk with you today. Thank you very much.
1: It has been an honor and and pleasure, and I really like to listen to these podcasts under the area code 605, and here is why if we have a minute. Sure. Let me share that with you. Sure. God willing, depending on the situation in Europe, Mm -hmm. I will be a voluntary unpaid guest lecturer in my native Hungary, starting mid-March and ending mid-May this year. Okay. And there I will teach re- regional literature, including Giants in the Earth. Wonderful. And as a background info, I will take the liberty of showing to my students who speak English the website under 605 and maybe playing yeah. some of the podcast. definitely recommending them to The students, uh, I hope, and this is sometimes a problem, it can be accessed also in Europe. Some of the Google books cannot be accessed, but I hope yours oh, is available I think. Yeah, there all be, over the world. I will test that. Yeah, uh,
0: that would be great. It, I'm if looking. If you do for that your, and test yeah, that and let me know yeah, how that goes. For
1: educational purposes. Right. Not just here, but right. in the global setting, as yes, they say.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, we certainly have a lot of interest in Europe, in uh, the people of the northern plains. Uh, the books are written about Sitting Bull and Loringles Wilder, and lots of things uh, uh, are yes right are, uh, are of interest to the people of Europe, and uh, and certainly our good wishes are with them, uh, given the situation of the times. Thank you. Yeah, and good luck with your travels. Thank you. <laughs> We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.